Amen. Amen. Good morning. It's great to see you guys here this morning. If you will, turn in the book of 1 John, and we're going to be in chapter 2 today. We're going to continue our series, What is Real? As we go through the book of 1 John, which was a letter that the Apostle John wrote to some first century Christians, you know, in this day and age, what is real is probably one of the most needed questions to be asked. Because we're told by many what is real. Many times they conflict. But what we as Christians understand to be real, what we as Christians understand to be truth, is the word of God. John chapter 17, verse 17. Jesus is saying, asking God in a prayer. He says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So today we understand that the Bible is truth, objective, undisputed, 100% truth that has proceeded from the mouth of God. And as we look and we ask the question, what is real? There is really only one place to go, and that is God's word. So if you will, stand to your feet as we read the scripture. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 7. So if you will, follow along. Beginning in verse 7, the Bible says, Dear friends, I am not writing you a new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the word you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light, but hates his brother or sister, is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Verse 11, but the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he is going. Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let's pray. Dear God, as we come to you this morning, Lord, we're thankful for the preserved scripture that you have preserved for us today in the 21st century. God, as we ask the question, what is real? Lord, and we begin to investigate the scriptures, I pray that you would bring to light many things that many of us may be struggling with. Many things that we are being taught on the news media, at school, at the universities, or by those we love the most. We pray, Jesus, that we would put the standard of the word up against all that we're taught so that we can rightly divide truth from lies. Lord, speak to us today. And God, I pray that there be anyone here this morning who doesn't know you as their Savior. I pray, Jesus, that you would bring them under conviction that they would not leave this place until they say yes to you, Jesus, the one who died on the cross, was buried, and rose from the dead. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the title of my message today is Lost in the Dark. Hannah and I went to Mammoth Cave several years ago, and this was kind of an anniversary trip that we took. It's a national park located in Kentucky. I don't know, if, have any of you ever been there before, Mammoth Cave in Kentucky? Very, very awesome place, very um, interesting place, because it is actually home to the longest cave system known in the world. And when you enter into the entrance of the cave, you begin down this steep metal spiral staircase. And as you're descending down the staircase, some areas are pretty tight fit, so you're having to kind of bend your head down and move side to side to descend down this big shaft in, deep into the earth. And it's really neat because the darkness in the depth of that cave was massive. Once we got to a certain place in the cave, the, uh, the tour guide told us, that, you know, stay where you are, we're going to turn the lights out for a minute. Because we want you to see what true darkness looks like. So we're all standing there in that large room there, um, about over 100 feet actually from the surface of the earth, deep into the earth's um, 
and then whenever we got down there, they turned the light out. And I'm telling you, the only way I can explain this darkness is that it was blindingly dark. It was almost like it was so dark, it was bright. It was so dark, it was almost deafening. And it was just an interesting experience because, you know, the only darkness that we know still has increments of light in it. We really don't know what true darkness is until we are completely separated from it. So as we think through that, we understand that we live in a world that is full of darkness. But, you know, we don't even really understand what true darkness is like. The Bible teaches us that because we are saved and born again, those of you who have accepted Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of you. So just by virtue of God's children being present on this earth, the presence of God is also influential on this earth. So really, in reality, the full darkness, the full wickedness that could possibly be here has not yet come. The Bible teaches us that there is one that is holding back the fullness of darkness, and that's the Holy Spirit. We understand as New Testament believers, as dispensational Christians, that there's going to come a time when the event called the rapture is going to take place. And the rapture is going to call out Jesus himself is going to call out all those who know him. And the Bible teaches us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, that we will be caught up in the air together with him. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then those that remain. Well, when that day comes, you have to understand that God's children are now going to be taken from this earth. And there is no longer going to be the light that's going to restrain the darkness here anymore. And we know that that is going to really provide the perfect conditions of what's known as the seven-year tribulation of great judgment in this world. Remember, the period of seven years that the, the Bible teaches is a period of judgment. That's why Christians will not be here during that time, because we have the judgment for our sins has already been paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. So we understand that we will be saved from that judgment but that and that alone is when we will see the full darkness of all evil and all wickedness fall upon this earth. Well, the book of 1 John loves to use these dichotomies. He uses light and darkness. He uses the terms truth and lie. So he continues to move through trying to explain to us the nature of our salvation, the nature of the fact that we have been born again. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, that's between them and God, and I'm not going to dive into that. You know, I'm not really going to try to figure out if someone's saved or not. Well, the reason that doesn't make sense is because the book of 1 John is basically a test. It basically gives us how we can know that we've been saved and how we can know others have been saved. The word K-N-O-W is used several times in the book of 1 John. And as we even read through the scripture this morning, which we'll get into a little deeper, it says, you know that you've come to know him because of this. You can know that you know Jesus because of this in your life. Listen, we have a no-so faith. We don't have a faith that has to be questioned, that has to continually be examined. We know that we know because we've trusted in Jesus. And the Bible teaches us that when we've been born again, that we change. Our lives are different. They no longer are what they were. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but it means that there will be a noticeable change in your life. You may have a friend, a coworker, a neighbor. Yes, I'm a Christian. I know Jesus. I know all this. But yet they live in open sin. My friends, according to the word of God, they don't know Jesus Christ. Now you say, Ben, you can't judge them. You're right. I'm not judging them. The word of God is placing judgment. And here's the thing. We have been called to proclaim the truth to a lost and a dying world. I don't love my friends. I don't love my neighbors unless I tell them the truth. If I pat them on the back in their sin, you know what? 
I'm hating them. I'm not caring for their soul. I'm saying you live however you want to live. If that makes you happy, I'll live how I want to live, and we just won't talk about it. Listen, that's of the devil. God has called us to intersect darkness because we are the light. The light indwells us through the person of the Holy Spirit. The light must intersect the darkness in order to eradicate the darkness. The only way your lost loved ones and family members and neighbors are ever going to know about Jesus is if you intentionally tell them the truth in love. We have been called to do that. So the first thing I want us to see in this scripture is this. There was light in the Old Testament. There was light in the Old Testament. We find that in verse 7 of 1 John chapter 2. Now remember this, light and love are synonymous in John's first letter in many places. A lot of times he will say, if you walk in the light, but then he says, if you're walking in the light, you love your brother. So here we're understanding that the light is associated with love. So you may think, and I've heard this by, from a lot of people, they'll say, you know what? The God of the Old Testament was mean, and he was judgmental, and he liked to kill people, and he eradicated entire races and all this other stuff. He's not a loving God, but the God of the New Testament, you know, he's really loving. Well, did you know that love is all through the Old Testament? Here, as John is writing in 1 John uh, ver, uh, chapter 2, verse 7, he says, Dear friends, I am not writing you a new commandment, but an old command that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the word you have heard. You ever heard of old laws that are still in the books? In like little municipalities throughout the country or even on the state law records, there's these laws, they're almost outdated, but no one has taken the time to ever renew them or revise them or bring them up to, to current, you know, uh, you know, a current way that it actually is applicable to life. Well, I just wanted to share a few of those with you. One of them is in Wisconsin, margarine is illegal. Did you know that? Of course, it's the dairy state. Margarine is a big competitor, and I'm sure they don't enforce it, and I'm sure you can buy it up there, but that's still in the books. Children's lemonade stands are illegal in many municipalities across the country. You know, you got to get that business permit before you can sell that lemonade, right? Alabama's got what they call a fake mustache law, all right? <laughs> Listen to this. It's said to be illegal to make a person in church laugh by wearing a fake mustache on Sunday. <laughs> still on the books. A lady named Stephanie Morrow shared one from Salem, West Virginia, where it is against the law to eat candy less than an hour and a half before church service. If, I think if y'all did that, you'd probably be falling asleep on me. Now, here's one uh, for the state of North Carolina. Bingo sessions must not last longer than five hours. I don't think Cherokee knew that one, have they? They hadn't heard that one yet. In Pennsylvania, you actually have to dismantle your car and hide it if you're sharing the road with a team of skittish horses. In Missouri, you cannot under any circumstances drive with an uncaged bear in your car. <laughs> now, these are real. I'm telling you, these are real. You can look them up later. Oklahoma warns that you can expect to pay a fine if you make ugly faces at someone's dog. That sounds like downtown Asheville, actually. <laughs> Illinois forbids you from giving your pup a lighted cigar no matter how much he wants one. Memphis, Tennessee doesn't have a problem with women driving, but they must be preceded by a man waving a red flag. Amen, right? <laughs> I knew y'all would like that one, right? So you got these old laws, right? These old laws, right? Well, the Bible also has an old command. 
And what we're going to find out is this old command is love. That God, even in the beginning stages of humanity, commanded his people to love one another. That love was always associated with righteousness. So what, where is this old law found? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, this is known as the Shema, which I many times describe as maybe the, the national anthem of the Jewish people. They all would have memorized the Shema. But part of the Shema is this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Love was a very, very integral part of Old Testament Judaism. You go forward to Leviticus chapter 19. As we go through the many laws of the Old Testament tabernacle, as Moses is receiving revelation from God and he's passing it on to Aaron and his sons as the priests, love again is central. It says in Leviticus 19 verse 18, Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. From the very beginning, it was a command. This principle is so evident in the Old Testament, you'll find many times where God loved man, he loved nature, and he even loved the animal kingdom, and he implored the Israelites to love one another. You ever heard of the Sabbaths in the Old Testament? Well, nowadays, the term Sabbath is completely misconstrued. I know that there is a, a sect of Christianity known as Seventh-day Adventism, and I don't want to knock that faith because they do have a pure form of the gospel, but they have gotten the Sabbath day wrong. They have turned what is known as the Sabbath day into a day of worship. Now, in the Old Testament, the Sabbath day would not have been a day where you would convene at your local church. It would not have been a day where you would have left your home and went and congregationally worshipped. The Sabbath in the Old Testament was where people would stay to themselves. They would stay in their own homes. They would prepare food the day before so that they wouldn't cook or wouldn't work that day. And they would stay within their homes. It was a day of rest. Well, see, the day of rest was even given, and there was even a year of jubilee and a seven-year rest that God had prescribed in the Old Testament so that God's land could even rest. You know, if you harvest crops and you overwork the land, it becomes malnourished, and it doesn't produce the crop anymore. Well, in Leviticus, God had what was called a yearly Sabbath, which was every seventh year the children of Israel would not plant crops. And then every 50th year, they also would not plant crops. And that was God's way of giving the land rest. It was his way of showing love and compassion even to his creation. So what you understand is that love is throughout the Old Testament. Even the Sabbath days, the weekly Sabbaths, the, the seventh day of the week, you were not to work your animals. Because there was, again, a compassion toward those animals because if you worked them nonstop, seven days a week, 12 hours a day, eventually they're going to give out. So we understand that the character of God is entrenched in love. And that part of recognizing a believer is seeing God's love in their life playing out. Let me tell you something. If you are not exhibiting love towards your brothers in Christ, toward those in your neighborhood, to those in your community, something is wrong with your heart. Something is going on, and you need to get it right with God. Maybe you need to repent of some sin. Maybe you need to get rid of some bitterness. Or maybe you need to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior because you've never been changed. But this is something that we can know, that we can understand that love is most certainly a part of God's plan. Again, the year of Jubilee that I talked about before, it was every 50th year, and essentially every 50th year, the land would receive this great amount of rest, but also the children of Israel, a way that they would pay their debts is they would sell themselves into servitude. So let's say that someone is just uh, financially distraught, 
There's no way they can pay their debts. Their final way of paying their debt is for them to sell themselves to their debtor to, to serve them, right? Well, the, the year of Jubilee was this. When the year of Jubilee would come, all of the children of Israel who had sold themselves into servitude to other Israelites were commanded on the year of Jubilee to release them back. To, to no longer hold them in servitude anymore, but to literally forgive them of their debt and allow them to go back to their homes and to their families. Again, it is an example of the love of God in the Old Testament. We also see this, that when people would harvest their fields, now listen, the children of Israel were very agricultural people. They, they, they lived off of the land. They grew food. That was an essential part of their everyday lives. Well, those who were wealthy enough to have large pieces of property and grow a lot of food were commanded in the Old Testament to not reap everything. They were actually to leave the corners of their fields and also, they were not to glean every piece of food that would have dropped on the ground. They were to harvest everything but the corners, and they were to leave everything else. The Bible says, because God wanted to provide for the poor and for the strangers, so that they could then come into the field and get the food they need. So see, God has always made a concession for people. He's always shown love. He has always been a God of love, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament. He is the same God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a God of love. So that's the light in the Old Testament, right? Well, now let's look at the light in the New Testament because did you hear what 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 7 says? Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have heard from the beginning. The old command is the words you have heard, speaking of Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and those Old Testament commands. Now he says in verse 8, Yet I am writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So he's saying, listen, this is an old command, I understand. I'm not writing you a new command. But then in verse 8 he says, Yet I am writing you a new command. It almost sounds contradictory, right? Well, what he's alluding to there is the fact that something has changed since the last time that was commanded in the Old Testament. Something new has taken place that is better exemplified the idea of love. Now, the idea of love was very prevalent in the Old Testament, but when Jesus died and rose again, he exemplified love in such a way that it revealed love even more so to the human understanding. Because Jesus' sacrificial love and the giving of himself on the cross brought it to a new light. So in many ways, it was a new commandment because it was more easily understood because the God of heaven gave his everything for a bunch of people who did not deserve him. You know, love is unconditional. True love. I'm not talking about Hollywood love. I'm not talking about, you know, the, 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 the warm, fuzzy feeling type, type love. I'm not talking about that kind of love, okay? That's all emotional. I'm talking about true, unconditional love is a love that exists and a love that is shown regardless of whether or not you deserve it. It is a love that keeps coming, that keeps uh, showing itself even when we are the most unlovable. That is true love. And that love was exemplified beautifully when the God of heaven gave his life for a worthless sinner like me. I promise you, I don't deserve salvation. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Last time I checked, all means all. Romans 3, there are none righteous, no, not one. None means none. That means we don't deserve salvation. That means we didn't deserve the price that Jesus paid for us on the cross. 
there is certainly light in the New Testament. This past weekend, Hannah and I took the kids down to Sullivan's Island in South Carolina. And this is the first time Sam has ever been to the beach. We just spent a couple of days down there and, and had a great time. And Sam had to learn a new command while we were at the beach this weekend. Because in Candler, North Carolina, this command doesn't apply, but in Sullivan's Island it does. Do not touch dead jellyfish. Okay? So nobody sees dead jellyfish up here in the mountains of western North Carolina. But when you go to Sullivan's Island, you're going to see some dead jellyfish. And of course, little Sam, because of his curiosity, he wants to touch that jellyfish, right? It looks gooey. It looks like maybe some Play-Doh. I can just sink my fingers into it. So I pull him back every time, and then he tries to juke me out, and he tries to get around me and get to that jellyfish. But anyways, that was a new command for him, one that was applicable for the situation that he was in. So when we think about new commands, we understand that, listen, it may be something that we didn't fully consider before, but is applicable in our lives right now. It's like those old laws we talked about. A lot of those are not applicable anymore. I mean, you don't have to worry about teams of skittish horses riding down the road and you having to dismantle your car, right? But today, love is just as relevant today as it was in the Old Testament. Yes, it was an old command, but yes, it is also a new command. So is it really a new law? We have to understand that love must be seen through what Jesus did for us on the cross. In Matthew chapter 20, 22, beginning in verse 37, we see Jesus reiterating that Old Testament law. In verse 37 of Matthew 22, he said this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. You know what Jesus was saying there? Yes, that was an Old, Test, Old Covenant law, but I'm going to bring it to the New Covenant. And I'm going to say that today it is just as relevant as it's ever been. I am calling you to love God and to love each other. Now listen, that's hard sometimes. In the, in the 21st century that we're living in, people have a lot of opinions. And I don't know if this was like this 50 years, 60 years ago. You know, Did people have as many opinions back then as they do today? I don't know if anybody lived back then can tell me. No, maybe, maybe not. Maybe they were just a little more quiet about it. Today, people are very vocal about their opinions. And listen, that's okay. But when you're vocal about your opinions, sometimes you ruffle feathers and sometimes it gets a little bit difficult to be in relationship with people because of certain disagreements. But did you know that the love of God is supposed to supersede our political affiliations, supersede our, our upbringings, supersede our uh, predispositions of certain people, you know, supersede whether you're born in the north or the south, supersede you know, whether you're raised a Methodist or a Baptist. God's love is to supersede all of those human divisions. And it's supposed to bring us to an understanding of what love is. Now listen, I may not agree with my, brothers and, my Methodist brothers and sisters about everything. All right, We believe in Duncan. They believe in sprinkling, however that may be, and that's okay. But I can still love them. I can still care for them. I can still be there for them. Right, Because that is what God has called us to do, to love. And listen, love is a common theme throughout Scripture. Think about Ephesians chapter 5, where God, through the Apostle Paul, commands husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Or think about Ephesians 4.15, where God has called all Christians to speak the truth in love. Or 1 Timothy 1.5, where God has called preachers to speak out of love. Love is an integral part of the faith, and without it, you need to be concerned about how you stand with God. The last thing that I want us to look at, we've seen about light in the Old Testament, light in the New Testament. Now we have to answer 
the question, are you in the light or are you in the darkness? We're going to see that in verses 9 through 11. Let's read those. Verses 9 through 11 of 1 John chapter 2. The Bible says, The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness. It doesn't say maybe. It says is in the darkness walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. When you think through different careers, different career paths that people take, there are a lot of careers that require a test up front. There's got to be some sort of an exam that you pass. You think about real estate agents. You think about insurance salesmen. You think about lawyers. You think about doctors. You think about general contractors, electricians, plumbers. There's always some sort of an entrance exam or some sort of an exam so that you can be licensed by the government. You think, oh, that's just government bureaucracy. But in a lot of ways, that's a good thing. Okay, because I don't want someone coming over to my house working on my electrical if they don't know what they're doing. Really, in some ways, it's a good thing. And it's really showing people that you are what you say you are. You have the knowledge and the know-how and the understanding to do what you say you can do. It's, it's almost like uh, evidence, credentials. It's some sort of a proof that you are who you say you are. You know, in this day and age, the term Christian has been completely destroyed. The term Christian is almost meaningless in our society because everyone refers to themselves as Christians. We talked a few weeks back where if you polled the United States population, you would probably have somewhere between 60 to 70% of the American population that would say they're Christian. Now, that's not going any step further to ask them what Christianity means or to ask them who Jesus is or anything like that. But they would say that, yes, I'm Christian. Today, it's not enough just to ask someone if they're a Christian or not because that means nothing. But I'm going to tell you how you can know is when you watch how they live. You watch how their heart pours out because the Bible teaches us that who you truly are will come out. That if you regard bitterness and hate in your heart, it's going to come out as bitterness and hate toward other people. But if you have love, if you know Jesus, the giver of love, the Bible says that God is love, then it's going to come out. And people are going to see it. You know, there are many who, like I said before, say, don't judge people. Don't judge me. Don't judge others. But you know, the Bible does not teach that. I think that's one of those cultural things where people say, you know, Christians aren't supposed to judge people. Well, listen, the Bible tells a little different story. Let's listen to the Bible. Do we believe God's word this morning? Amen, Amen, we do. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13 say this. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So here we have the litmus test. We have exactly what we need to know in order to determine if someone is truly a Christian or not. The word of God. Now listen to this. The word of God, it says, can pierce to the very dividing parts of soul and spirit. There is no deeper part of a human being than you can get than to the very dividing part of their soul and their spirit. And did you hear what verse 12 says? It, talking about the word of God, is able to judge the thoughts and intentions 
of the heart. Now listen, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I can't see what you're thinking. I can't see what's in your heart. But the word of God is able to expose the intentions of your heart. The word of God is able to bring to light what's going on inside of your mind and inside of your heart. You may think, Ben, yeah, I'm sinning, but you'll never know about it. You may be right, but based upon the word of God, one day it's going to be exposed. One day it's going to be brought to light. And when the word of God says, if you don't love your brothers and your sisters, you're lost, guess what? I can proclaim that because of the judgment that the word of God has already made on you. The word of God has judged you. The word of God has placed judgment because the word of God is objective truth. Don't tell me you're a Christian when you spend more time gossiping about your brothers and sisters than you do reading God's word. Don't tell me you're a Christian when your brother or your sister is in need and you turn the nose up at them and you refuse to love them and help them. Don't tell me you're a Christian when your lost neighbor has a Black Lives Matter sign in their yard and every time you pass their house, you're cussing them under your breath. Don't tell me that. We may disagree with their political views, but that is an eternal soul that's going to spend forever somewhere. And God has called us to go and love them and tell them the truth. Now, let me be very clear about this. When I'm talking about this love, I'm not saying we just embrace all ways of life and all understandings. I'm telling that we tell sin, we call sin what sin is. We make it very evident when we believe based upon the word of God that someone's living wrong. But we do it in love. We don't do it because, you know what, I'm better than you. And I just can't believe that you would ever do that because I would never do that. No, we approach it as I'm a sinner just like you. And if it not for the grace of God, I'd be in the same situation you're in. It's all him and nothing of myself. We're all sinners. And we need to love people because we care about their soul. The most vile and wicked person you can think of, Jesus died on the cross for that person. And he's called you to love them. There may be people coming to your mind this morning that you felt bitterness toward, that you felt hatred toward. I'm telling you, the reason he's bringing those folks to mind is because he wants you to repent of your sin. He's calling you to repent. He's calling you to be a person of love, someone who speaks the truth in love. Now, now let's, let's talk about a few social issues that we have in our nation today. If you think about the transgender movement, if you know a transgender individual, you do not love them unless you tell them that they're living in sin. Do you understand that? Because the word of God says that God made man and woman in his image. He created them male and female. He created man and woman to be in a commitment for life, right? When we go outside that design, that brings destruction on the body, Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2. So we understand that if I allow that person to think it's okay to live in that transgender life, I am not loving them, I'm hating them. Because I'm allowing them to live in a destructive life that is going to bring them detriment, that is going to take them to a place of condemnation in a place called hell. We need to love people enough to tell them the truth. But tell them in love. Hey, if you're not willing to spend time to build a relationship with somebody and care for them and meet their needs, don't you waste time trying to tell them that they're living wrong. You need to build a relation. You need to love people. You need to make sure they understand that you're willing to meet their needs. Maybe you know someone who's, who's just hard up right now. Maybe they need some food. Go buy them some food. Take some food to their home and then build that relationship because then you are earning the right to speak into their lives and then they will listen. Remember what Jesus did so often? He would sit with what the Bible says was sinners. He would sit with the tax collectors and eat. He would sit with the prostitutes and he would eat. 
He didn't shun them. He didn't say, I can't stand you, get away from me. He went and he ate food with them. But you know what? He never hesitated to tell them the truth. He never hesitated to call sin, sin. He never once did. We need to be like Jesus today. We need to be a people who go into the world and love the world. And we need to understand what real love is. It's not being tolerant of everything that goes on. But it's loving somebody enough to tell them that they're living in sin. And then capping it off with, don't worry, because Jesus Christ died for your sin. And today you can be saved. I promise you, God can change lives if we will be people of love and care for people. You know, when we talk bad about people, we don't love them. You know, sometimes I think we have normalized gossiping in such a way in our culture that we have just glossed over it. It doesn't even bother us anymore. We just lend an ear to gossip. But you know what gossip is like? It's like taking an axe to a big oak tree. And you start hitting that tree with that axe. Eventually, that person that you're demeaning and you're kicking under the bus, eventually they're going to fall. Eventually, it's going to hurt them beyond repair because words hurt and words do matter. How you treat other people matters. And I'm telling you right now, there's going to be a day where we have to give an account for how we treat people and how we love people. Because you know what? If you say you're a Christian today, you're going around representing the king of glory. And if you misrepresent the king of glory, there will be a judgment for that. So I'm telling you that because I love you today. But I'm also telling you that because God's called us to love our community. And as we've said many, many times, you go down Milk Sit Cove. And I encourage you to just drive down Milk Sit Cove. Drive it to the very end. And I want you to look at all the houses and the trailer parks that you see as you go back through there. And I want you to understand that every home that you see going up in that cove represents an eternal soul or eternal souls that need to hear about Jesus. And let me tell you what, you know what would be a shame? One day we stand before God and God says, well, Liberty Baptist reached out to Milk Sit Cove. Lake Hills reached out to Milk Sit Cove. But Pole Creek, you were right there at the head of the cove and you never reached out. You never, you never made your presence known among the lost in your very own community. We've got to be a church that desires, that has a passion to impact our community for the gospel. Or we're not worth our salt. The Lord Jesus has planted Pole Creek Baptist Church in this specific location, this geographical location, because he has called us to reach our community for his son, Jesus Christ. And I promise you, we have a great, great gospel to preach and to proclaim today. If you will, bow your heads this morning.